This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. And Court, I suggest if someone is not a regular Zupan's Market shopper, they get in there and familiarize themselves. Selves? Well, it depends on whether we're talking about plural. Sure. Um, With the store. So as the holidays come up, you know exactly what's available to you for entertaining, gifts, any such thing, or just cooking great meals or enjoying great snacks. They have some of the best snack food. Uh, As we move into the uh, latter part of the year, we're still in summer, but it's, you know, there's a few months left. Yeah, these uh, times, they are changing. Isn't that the famous phrase? I think it's talking about different things completely than what we're talking about. Right. uh, To that point, Honeycrisp apples. One of my favorite things about fall are the fresh apples, and you can save a bunch of money on those right now at your local Zupans. Only $3.49 a pound. That's $1.50 off. Apples go well with pork, I've always found. And there's a great selection of apple sauces, which I like at Zupan's. But right now, 25% off Kurobuda pork. And if you go to Zupan's.com, you can learn about it and see that it is the pork equivalent to Wagyu beef. Oh, nice. Was not aware of that. Now you are. And so are a few other people. Yeah. Well, Peter Brady, definitely, because it's the pork chops and applesauce, right? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about that. You don't remember that from the Brady Bunch? No, I just know that it, maybe that's where I picked it up, but I've been <laughs> always pouring a little applesauce with pork chops my whole yeah. life. One of many reasons for you to go to your local Zupans, great things on sale now as we speak. In addition to that great pork, you've got sales on coho salmon, um, flank steak from Double R Ranch. Anything that is in season that's local, that's great, you can guarantee that it's, a, it's your local Zupans. And that's one of the reasons we love them so much. So visit one of three locations, Lake Oswego, Burnside, and this is maybe the first time we've mentioned it last, McAdam. That's true. We often lead with McAdam. Right. And we end with Burnside, so we switch it up a little bit here on the podcast. Well, we always end with the website, which is zoopans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm co-host, Court Johnson. How'd you like that uh, little image I sent you this morning, Court? Uh, Eight years ago today, I was on your radio show at Kink promoting stuff that was going on in the Portland food scene. I remember those days were great, and it turns out... It was right before our first trip to Barcelona with Jose Chesa, the first international trip that Portland Food Adventures had done at the time, like three days before. Mm. And here we are going to, uh, I'm leaving for Sicily, and we're doing a great trip again to eastern Sicily this time. We've done eastern, western, eastern. We're doing Sardinia next year. We had a number of people sign up this week, so if... So, Sardinia has been outed. I mean, I'm sorry, Court, go back on that. Yep. Sicily's been outed by the White Lotus as a place to go. And, man, rates skyrocketed. It's going to be crowded. However, Sardinia is the little golden gem that hasn't been outed by anybody on TV yet. So, we're doing a trip there next year. It's an island uh, north of Sicily. And, uh, hell, Tune in to my Instagram over the next, uh, you know, at the end of September, 
and uh, we'll be promoted. We'll yeah. once again pick it up, and we'll be displaying lots of wonderful pictures from uh, Sardinia with my dear friend Ostriensign. You're doing so, a preview uh, trip to kind of give uh, uh, give you an idea of where you're going. Right, so I can speak with some sort of knowledge about it ahead of time. And also, yes, just to check out, Austria hasn't been there for a couple of years, a few years, and we update it, and she likes to show me what the trip is going to be like. Um, and so we'll be able to share some live pictures and also pictures we take ourselves. Some of the things on the PortlandFoodAdventures.com website were kind of absconded from hotel websites and things we found on the internet that we thought might be a little under the radar, they will be updated soon with our own images. So nice. there's that. And we also have a few spots left to our trip. This will be our fourth such trip to Basque Country, Spain, with the folks from Urdaneta. Um, if you're tuned in, by the way, I understand uh, Javier Canteras, the chef at Urdaneta. This is his week to be on uh, Beat Bobby Flay. So, oh. so that's tonight, Thursday, when you and I are recording this. By the time this runs tomorrow, someone will have to find it as this week's episode. But it'll be there, right? All that stuff on the Food Network is. Uh, oh yeah, if if you're uh, in the sub- archives, yeah, if you're a subscriber of uh, HBO, it, no, what do they call it now? Max. Yeah, is that, that now has it, it's going to appear. Yeah, that that now has all of the discovery stuff, so you can find all the food. It's weird. I, I'm confused by it. I don't understand, like because they still have the discovery app. And uh, anyway, but if you've and then got you'll Max, be able to then find you can it on it. YouTube too. Well, you, so, you can do that. And I'm recording it on YouTube TV, so you you'd go. ever know. But but Chef Javier has a has a nice record of being successful. We don't know yet whether he wins this particular mm. match, but he has uh, a nice record of being successful on TV. He generated the funds for the restaurant they now have, Urdaneta, on a TV show years ago. I think he won $100,000 wow. um, nice. on that, and then he won on Chopped as well. So that's fun. So anyway, we have a trip with him, and you can spend a week with him and his Beautiful, dear, wonderful wife, JL. They are such a pleasure to travel with for me and anybody else who comes. And, of course, their ace server, Andre, who hats off to him. He's the one who knows the right people that should be coming with us. So most of the people coming on this particular trip next April, I believe it's the 21st. I might be wrong. Check the website to uh, confirm those dates. Uh, but most of the people coming on that trip were um, people Andre suggested, and he suggested they look into it, and they're booked. So we have a few spots left. That's a great trip. We wouldn't be doing it a fourth time if we didn't sell out the previous three. So um, sorry for going off on that tangent there from the my appearance on Kink in 2015. <laughs> but a lot has happened in those eight years, yep. and these trips are one of the things. And there there's a lot that has happened in the Portland food scene. Many places opening, many places closing since 2015. And uh, that brings us to today's episode with Nat West of Reverend Nat's Hard Cider, which was one of the first big ciders to launch Years ago, he launched it as a uh, stay-at-home dad looking for something a little uh, different to do. As he explains on this podcast, he was one of the first, or early, in addition, I I joined him, or I started it very early, but one of the first people who was working at home 
years ago in the tech industry and was looking for something a little different and started up his cider company. Very successful. They built it to uh, dozens of employees, uh, worldwide distribution, and now they're closing. And he explains why it's just closing. And, and what I found refreshing about it in this last few tumultuous years where a lot of our dear friends had to close restaurants very sadly, he's actually seeing it from the positive standpoint and seeing it as glass half full. No pun intended when we're talking about cider. So um, I really enjoyed this episode. He's a... Obviously, a very smart gentleman and uh, is looking forward to an interesting future. Uh, Where that will be, he's not so sure right now. But we talk about the last, I think, 12 or 13 years of the history of Reverend Nat's Hard Cider. And uh, I really like Nat. I didn't know him before this interview. I just saw he was closing and wrote and said, dude, we'd love to have you on the podcast. And he said, dude, okay. Dude. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark Restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. Listen, I appreciate you doing this. Most uh, most people in this industry or related industries who are closing businesses don't necessarily want to talk about it at that moment in time. So you seemed open to it, and I'm glad. And I think, uh, you know, I've talked to a few people about Nats, Reverend Nats, and uh, everyone seems to think this is an important moment. So how do you feel about that? Obviously, personally and business-wise, it's an important moment, but industry-wide, you set the tone for quite a while. Mm. I'll, I'll take that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm feeling um, you know, a lot of mixed emotions for sure. But yeah, I think my, you know, my willingness to discuss or, or even my excitement about discussing it is, a, is um, itself a pretty good um, you know, indicator of my perspective like I, this is not a i definitely don't see this as a failure um i see it as a uh, an experiment that has run its course and uh it we're ending on a great note um kind of going out in the best way that i not the best way that i could imagine but the <laughs> best way that i could realistically imagine 
And, uh, yeah, if you look back at everything we've done over the last 12 years, it has been an incredible journey. And I'm, you know, I'm really proud of all of our accomplishments. Well, aside from the end part of that, where you're talking about going out on a good note, I used to feel that way about my divorce. It was an experiment. It was the marriage was an 18 year, uh, you know, run. And I used to say to my kids, if you told me, and I'm, th- I'm the reason I'm mentioning this is it sounds like you feel the way about this about your business. If someone had told me at the beginning it was it was going to end after 18 years and it was going to be painful, I still would have taken it because there was a lot of good in there too. And it sounds it sounds to me as though that's the way you're looking at it. And man, is that healthy? And you're young, and I think you're a very bright man to be able to see this is just a chapter, and you got more to go. You got more to come. Yeah, you know, I've been talking to a lot of folks about this process, and those exact words have come out of my mouth if somebody had said 12 years ago hey this is what the whole program is going to look like and these are all the challenges you're going to have and these are the successes you're going to have and it's going to end this way do you want to do it i'd be absolutely sign me up for it so it's um not to say that it's been great because it's been really 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 hard um at, at a lot of times but it is by far the best job i've ever had and um i'm certainly there's part of me that's sad to see it go but I also love change in general, whatever the topic is. Uh, so I'm really excited for, you know, for what's next. Yeah, well, you have some good experience under your belt, right? You do have, however you want to define it, you've got a success. You had successful periods there and success in building a brand and a company from being a stay-at-home father to this and you're no longer right you how old are your kids now uh 19 <laughs> right we're, so they're we're empty be nesters off, right they're gonna be off your if they're not already they're gonna yeah. be off your dole Gone. soon yeah and that makes a big difference so you got through the tough part going through all this and now you know uh i don't know if you want to talk about it now or i'd love to chat about what you're if you have plans or what your general vision is or outlook for your future, what is that right now? I really don't have plans. And I'm not, I'm not like a politician saying, I don't know if I'm going to run. I, I, I definitely... <laughs> Maybe um, that's it. <laughs> no, no, no. I, am, I, I, I joke that I would be you know, a fantastic dictator, but not, I, have, I, don't, I don't really love you know, yeah, but the politics stuff. Hey, you could well. run as Reverend Nat, and that's a winning name. Maybe that, everybody would vote for that. Maybe right. You can cover it both ways. Yeah, so. I might run well, but I don't think I would govern very well. So, well, you don't know. You're you governed a company, so yeah. I'm, I'm. I definitely. You know, I've been thinking about the end of Reverend Nats for years. I think a, a lot of uh, people who are in this industry think about it, um, you know, regularly. And, you know, whether they're thinking about it seriously or just thinking about it as a possibility, um, you know. And and um, when I sort of made the decision a few weeks ago, you know, the, the actual decision, the one decision that stuck as opposed to just sort of daydreaming about it, I um, realized that closing the business was another project just like opening a new cidery or opening a new tap room or launching a new product or switching from bottles to cans or you know hiring a new senior member of the staff each one of these things was a project that um requires a lot of attention and requires a lot of commitment and diligence and that's what i've been focused on for the last few weeks is 
making sure that our end is a Reverend Nats kind of end. It's, you know, it's with intention. It's with quality. Um, I think that's kind of, in some ways I owe that to the customers. Customers have been so good to me over the years um, that I owe them, you know, a, a final hurrah in a good way. And yeah, and I, I absolutely have been thinking about our, our legacy and what we've accomplished and making sure that we maintain the same level of integrity during the closing process that we have during the cider making process. I know, you know, when I uh, started all my my association with the food and beverage industry, which was around 2010, um, you know, cider wasn't wasn't a th- to me a thing. I'm not a big I'm not a big uh, beverage consumer, um, but it wasn't a thing. And it seemed to be over the years more and more important. I shared some cider with my buddy Leaf out on the coast, you know, Leaf Gildersleeve, I'm sure, mm-hmm. yep. just yesterday. And it's something we, he never would have said, do you want to, in his cooler, amongst all the beers that he had, right. he would have had cider. <laughs> I don't think right. 10 years ago he would have had it. Absolutely. And, and now he did. So you got how much... How much uh, cre- uh, uh, credit do you give Reverend Nats and also Portland, the Portland right. cider scene, for helping it to grow nationwide? Yeah, I mean, the um, the best time and place to start a cider company in the history of the universe is Portland, 2011, and that's when we started. Uh, it was there was enough groundwork laid by some of the early pioneers like a lot of times you don't want to be first to market because the first to market person is like doing all the work and you get no and it's just like a struggle so there were some folks that started up in the the aughts um and they some of them came and went and some of them came and have since went um but there was enough uh, you know i only spent like two years answering the question that people would ask is there alcohol in here and you know folks who came before me spent their entire careers explaining what cider was and you know we could rely on a bit of um edu- education within the consumer not now we had to do a, a ton of our own what makes revernats unique and, and and pushing the story of of cider outside of the bubble of Portland as we, as we, you know, went along. So there's still a lot of education to do, but it was a great time to start. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think the reason why Portland was the best location to start was because of our craft beer scene. So we have the best craft beer in, we have the best craft beer scene in the world. I think I've traveled, had the fortune of traveling a lot, Europe, Japan, um, all over the United States. And the, you know, the level of sophistication of both the craft brewers and the resulting beers and the consumers in Portland is like no other place in America. We have any kind of beer at extremely high levels of quality, and um, there's a lot of innovation, and there's a lot of open-mindedness. There aren't, uh, I don't think there's as much brand loyalty as there is as there may in Portland beer drinkers, as there may be in other places where, uh, you know, craft beer drinker in Portland, sure. They love Freem. They love Breakside. They love, you know, Zoigel house. You, you can go a, a craft beer drinker in Portland can look at the list on a, a tap list and appreciate many, many of the beers there. And that's, I think it drives everyone to have really high quality, um, you know, a higher quality of beers come out of Portland breweries than anywhere else. 
Um, and then I think also we communicate really well in Portland. Um, maybe it's the West Coast mentality. Maybe it's the sort of chill Pacific Northwest mentality. It's not the um, the aggressiveness of Seattle. Uh, it's not the sort of snootiness of San Francisco. We really help each other here. And so, you know, I've found myself drinking a beer and it's got diacetyl in it. And I'll text the brewer right there and say, hey, this keg, this bar at this time of night, it's got some diacetyl. You should check it out. And there's no malice in that conversation. There's no on either side. There's no, you know, trying to one up each other or whatever. It's all about hey, I don't think you want the beer to taste this way. And as a result, I bet there are customers who are like, I don't like this beer. Um, so that's something that all of us in, in the, you know, I consider myself a, a brewer who makes cider. And that's all of us in the beer community. We've, we really help each other out, um, you know, cr- critiquing each other for the betterment of the beers, but also helping each other like, hey, can I borrow a whatever? Or can I get some help with this prog- problem that I have? So we have a really fantastic community here. And I think that's, really contributed uh, as well to the the proliferation of cider same thing in the food community and it's you know absolutely something i saw a long time ago and i won't mention it again but it's why i started what i started in the food world was this feeling of collaboration you know you talk about that where i came from in connecticut there's no cider company that would say go drink that cider that's great The, the attitude at restaurants was that's where i'm where I'm coming from here, there was no restaurateur who would say, go across the street and uh, let me know how it was. Um, right. There was no attitude like that. So it's like that in the food community. Do you think the, um, do you think maybe the romance has come to an end? We've seen a few people close lately, a few breweries close lately. Um, you know, there, and what you cited before or just a moment ago was, it's easy to love a lot here because there's a lot to love. Yeah. And when there's a lot, uh, sometimes there's got to be some culling going on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that is the, the other edge of the sword. Like, um, everybody makes great beer. You can't just make great beer and expect to survive. You know, you're not, you're not the only brewery in Portland that makes a great name the style. You're not even potentially the only brewery in your neighborhood that makes that style. So how do you differentiate yourself? And, and that differentiation is certainly challenging. Um, and yeah, it's got to contribute to, um, you know, some of the closures that we've seen. Um, I think that that's ultimately not a bad thing because in the you know 2000s and in the 2010s, all you had to do is put alcohol in a can and say it's from Portland and poof, everybody buys it. And that's not the way unfortunately that's just not the way capitalism works right you've got to have a bunch of other things you got to have consistency and you got to have a great brand message and you got to have good you know if you have a a, a public face you got to have a public face you can't just exist as a manufacturing facility you know people want to know where you know how the beer is made and meet the brewer and you have to have a whole lot of other things like you, you got to be a fairly uh charismatic person if, if you're planning on capitalizing on your public image you got to hire great people. You got to treat them really well. Um, you got to pay them well. Uh, there, there's so many things that you have to do well, and I think that's okay because our 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 job as an industry is to continue to grow and advance and mature. And um, you know, I think we got away with being, you know, kind of immature brewers who didn't care about anything except making beer 
for a long time. And I think it's a, 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 a writing that, that is good to happen. I mean, even with the closures, it's not like it's hard to find good beer in Portland. Well, that's true. There's gonna, you could have a lot. The same thing happened with restaurants. A lot of them closed, and you can still eat really well and not have to work very yeah. hard to do that. Yeah, I mean, even so, even in the, the small, much smaller world of cider, you know, we were Portland's largest cider company. Um, there are still some fantastic producers. You know, when I started making cider, um, you know, one of my favorite producers, Bauman's, they're uh, just south of Portland. Um, in the Willamette Valley, it, she wasn't around. She's a relatively new brewer, and I think she's making the second best cider in Oregon. Um, and soon to Swift, be the first. Yeah, soon to be the first, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> Swift Cider in North Portland. He's a very good friend of mine. I've known him for a long time, and um, you know he's in the same distributor that, that I am here in Portland, and that's a fantastic opportunity. So I, I look forward to drinking. I've always enjoyed drinking my own ciders, and I look forward to drinking more of other people's ciders now. There's still plenty of great options out there. Well, that is a that is a uh, very noble way to look at it. Do you recall? So I look back on some things that have gone on for me in the past 12 years. And I would imagine there was a point in time where if someone would have said to you, oh, in 2023, you're going to be having a conversation about closing down the most successful cider operation in Portland and Oregon and maybe the, the Pacific Northwest um, or further. Um, at what point would you have been shocked based on where you were and what you were doing to, uh, to have heard that? Yeah. Well, since this is an industry podcast, I'll, I'll be honest, at no point in the last 12 years would I have been shocked to hear that. This has been, this business has been a lot of, you know, just drama constantly, um, you know, we've grown a huge amount and that has taken its toll in a lot of negative ways as well as positive. Um, you know, I've had, I have a bunch of different investors and they're great people, but when you just get a bunch of people, you know, together, things come up. Um, so, it's and it's been, hard it, decision it's, by committee too. It's been a lot of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, whatever it is, there's, there's been huge challenges. I've had distribution, local distribution challenges. Um, we we changed distributors in the last couple of years to a great distributor. But so there's there's always been opportunities for this business to close. Uh, and then you know, COVID comes along and we lose a huge amount of our business because um, uh, of that. So, um, but I think that taking a step back from the question, of like when would I have thought that was um, I- surprising? But Actually, if I, my question was different, but go ahead and finish this. If, if I look back and say to myself, at what point would I be disappointed mm-hmm. um, to find a closure, an imminent closure? I think that would only be in the last couple of years because for the first 10 years or so, I was, I, there were so many things I wanted to do and I was so, um, my identity was really wrapped up in the business and uh, I, I didn't, I, I, failure was not an option. Like it was, I was considering my own my own humanness to be what happens in the business. And um, during COVID, you know, we all had our own independent COVID experiences, right? And one of mine was um, a bit of a separation of the the ego from the business. I I started to treat it more like a job, a job that I still did with a lot of passion and uh, a lot of excitement every day. You know, I didn't. I still woke up at 6.30 and got to work right away without anybody telling me when, when to wake up. Um, so I didn't reduce my my workload or my excitement or whatever, but I started to remove my sort of sense of identity from the business a bit. So over the last couple of years, it's become um, 
easier and easier and ultimately easy enough for me to say, yeah, that's the business and and this is me and the business is going to close and I'm going to be happy. That's, that's, how did you actually come to that decision? You talked about investors. What was the point where you came to that decision? And then I'm going to get back to what I, what I miscommunicated in the question. Yeah. I think the, 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 um, the question of actually closing, uh, you know, I do, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm literally a jack of all trades and I, I rarely meet people who can do, you know, jack level performance at everything. Like I can, you know, fix motors and run three phase electricity and program spreadsheets. And, you know, I do all of our own tax reporting. I, I, I make the labels. I'm responsible for the design of the company as well. So, um, the workload that I have is really unique. And when I was a larger company, I had other people doing these things. Um, but as the company shrank during COVID, there was more and more roles um, heaped on me, which I was not bitter about, but it made it very difficult for the business to operate with any um, president, any operator other than me. Um, so when I started to feel some personal willingness to move on um it became despite the fact that there's a lot of owners you know i get to decide I, I was able to decide when the business was done from a personal perspective because um, without me there's no operation um luxurious position to be in maybe not so luxurious because it would have been great to keep, keep the business going and i could have just taken a step back um but, you know, it is what it is. So here we are. So the, the process of communicating that with uh, my investors, you know, the, we've had a lot of financial challenges over the years. We've gotten through, but I think they all realized over the course of the first bunch of years of their investment that this was probably not going to be, you know, bought by Anheuser-Busch. You know, once Anheuser-Busch stopped buying brands and they didn't buy Revernats, you know, once that sort of acquisition mode of craft beer, the, the the insane growth levels of craft beer, once those sort of evaporator dried up, you're like, okay, what's Revernats' plan? You know, I think they all understood for the last few years that um, that financial was a, was a big problem in this business. So when it came time to close, so far, everybody I've talked to with any meaningful way has just been really supportive, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, just like uh, pr- that, I telling me that I should be proud of what we did, and um, so that's I feel you know hashtag blessed about that. For sure. Right. It's well, it's it's hard enough as it is, so it's good to have support in that. Absolutely. A, at yeah. that point in time. So, what my question sure. I, I miscommunicated. I want to go outside the. I want to go to before. Reverend Nats came to be or making cider came to be before that was something you were considering doing or doing as a career and uh, ask you how you, uh, you know, if someone were to tell you you're going to build this, like it's a dream, Some, you're going to build this big company and you're right. going to close it. What were you doing at that point to, that would have made it amazing that you, were, that you built this company out of nothing? Mm. Uh, so my previous, so I, I've been doing Reverend Nats for 12 years now. My previous career was IT, programming, system design, database stuff websites, things like that. I did that for 13 years. And I, I did almost all those years work from home. And this was before 
you know, the current work from home craze. So, um, that was good work. Um, you know, as well, it was good pay. Got to work in my pajamas. Um, everybody's goal. <laughs> yeah, I was there, right? But it was also like almost ten years of working. Um, actually, at this desk that I've had now for twenty years, mm-hmm. um, and it got to the point where I was just ready for a change. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't flit around from ideas from one idea to the next. You know, I've been I've been at the last one for thirteen, this one for twelve, um, and I was just. Um, ready for a change and I also wanted to do things that were really different than that world so that world was um, you know it wasn't real Uh, we were just making things that if you drop a big magnet on your work poof it all goes away right so there's no realness you're not really in the real world there and I was having a lot of conversations and and relationships with people like this over audio and a video screen I didn't uh, you know, I, I would have years-long relationship with people and never met them in person, never got drunk together, never clinked a glass together. And so I wanted to do something that was really the exact opposite of all those, n- not necessarily even the, the kind of work, the day-to-day work, but the the sort of co- qualitative things around the work um, that I wanted to be really different. And I didn't really necessarily know that that's what I wanted, um, I just knew that I wasn't happy doing that other work. Um, and then once I started to get into this and, you know, leaving the house every day um, and the, the busyness of it, I'm definitely able, the kind of person who can handle, um, you know, a task list a mile long and, and competing priorities. And that was a, a refresh, refreshing change from my previous job where I was just like, okay, do this build this project straight through and sure it had its own tasks but it was pretty narrow in its well you focus. didn't get to drink it yeah there was no outcome it's like <laughs> okay i mean like i built programs i built software for like raytheon and like giant insurance companies and ohsu here in oregon so there's like there's not a lot of like there's no cool factor in any of that kind of stuff um so i wanted something very different and then you know this was certainly checked all those boxes and i think maybe your question of like what's next if i had to guess it's going to be swing back the other way it's going to be you know not have a lot of complexity um maybe not engage with a lot of people i mean i don't really feel that but i'll i might find myself on a more of a solo trek um than i have been for the last while and you know with less concern about getting into a, a real physical thing consumer goods or whatever well, now you've had that experience, and now you know whether you want to. It may have been great, but it, as you said, it may be time. Yeah. Let's take. Speaking of time, I uh, just want to take a break for a message from Ringside, and we'll come back. And I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what you enjoyed most about Reverend Nats, and also, you know, what you feel that uh, you could improve going forward. What you might be able to learn going forward. We'll be right back with Nat West. Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat in Portland, an institution, as it were, Ringside Steakhouse. 79, over 79 years. 
I remember we were just saying 75 years, so time's flying, and uh, and we're coming up on an 80-year institution in Portland, uh, Ringside Steakhouse, where now, something they didn't have for most of those 80 years was, an, was outdoor dining, and their patio is awesome, and um, it's a really nice spot to eat. They have, they have some heaters out there if you need them. It's really pretty. So whether you're eating, you know, when you eat at ringside, you can either eat in the beautiful dining room, the bar now, you can make reservations to eat in the bar, or outside. Lots of choices there, in addition to lots of choices for different cuts of steak. Right, Court? Yeah, I was just telling you this off air, Chris. I went just recently with my wife, Randy. Uh, You had been telling me, you got to get the Wagyu, you got to get the Wagyu. I I finally did, um, because there's so many great items to choose from, and I just hadn't got to it yet. I went with the olive-fed Wagyu, and easily the best steak I have ever had in my life. I, I was dumbfounded by it. It's a treat. It's not something you're going to get every time you go in there because it's a little expensive. Sure. But I've seen it for way more elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's something if you have, you know, a couple of times you get to say, just like you did, that it's the best steak you've ever had. And they yeah. have it. They have different options, too. So olive, olive fed is just one of them. The food, the food is delicious. And the service is absolutely bar none. The best in town. We had Colin serving us and just the best service the entire night. Best food. If it's a special occasion, if it's not a special occasion, Ringside Steakhouse is the place to go. Yeah, it will be. Just go in there. It will turn into a special occasion. There it is. So, uh, and they also have food to go now, and they even on their website they've got a, a scrolling banner. Ringside steaks are on sale, so that's a good opportunity as well. So they are on West Burnside. They're open. Let's give the hours here: four thirty to nine Monday through Thursday, four to nine thirty Friday and Saturday, and four to nine on Sunday. And, of course, set up those reservations. You can do that through the website, ringsidesteakhouse.com, or on the Open Table app. We're back with Matt West. And um, one thing I think you talked about that you wanted to get into something different. How did you decide that it was going to be the cider business? Uh, Yeah, so I had been making cider. um, I started off making cider because a neighbor um, had an apple tree that was just dumping huge amounts of apples on the ground and i had some friends who were home brewers and i've never actually made beer it's kind of funny but um i would kind of help them a little bit make beer hold the wart chiller in the in the wart pot and um and i wanted to do something creative something physical because again i was doing all this it computer work that was digital and not the real world so i really enjoyed the process of making cider these these apples are coming off the tree and i thought to myself oh i should I think you can get drunk off those. I never actually had cider before. The first cider I ever tasted was my own. Um, but I Googled, you know, hard cider, um, and I bought a book. And, um, yeah, I, I whipped together a, a juice press and, you know, ground up the apples and fermented them. and went to the local homebrew shop to say, hey, how do I make hard cider? Just kind of learn whatever I could. Back then, the information was not very, you know, useful, helpful, or... or um, not very diverse. The information was just like, put white wine yeast in and drink. Um, so, you know, I've been making cider about six years and I was a part 
part-time stay-at-home dad running my computer business from home during the days, uh, or mostly doing that at night and taking care of my kid during the day. Um, and uh, collecting apples and pressing apples was a, is a fantastic thing to do with a three and four and five and six year old. So we did a lot of that. Um, and even when it came to the bottling and everything, my kid was super helpful. Uh, and then, um, I was sitting around my kitchen table with some friends, um, one night and of course we were drinking cider and we were all a little drunk and and somebody brought a bottle of cider that was made using the same apples from an orchard a very unique orchard that i was getting apples from as well and that cider was not good and we all thought it was terrible and my version of that cider with the same apples in it was delicious and i just thought to myself this is a shame like we're it's i need to make cider for the sake of the apples, you know, these, these apples are being abused. Um, so, uh, yeah. And my friends and I were, my friends were just like, you, you got to do it. We were all drunk, of course. And, uh, and that was, <laughs> that's the that best was, way to start a business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was August 10th, 2011 and August 11th, 2011. The next day I went on the secretary of state's website and filed for an LLC. And I was, I was, uh, I just dove into it right away. Wow, that's pretty quick. And and at what point did you come up with the name Reverend Nats? That actually was a name that I was putting on my homebrew bottles. Mm-hmm. So I, I I got ordained to marry some friends many many years ago, and um, I've only done two weddings, and they're both still married. So I'm retired from weddings now. Um, and uh, my when I got ordained, my friends thought it was hilarious because I'm a non I'm a, I'm a devout atheist. So my friends were like, "Hey, um, they, they started calling me Reverend Nat just as a joke," and I just put that on my homebrew bottles, and then uh, the name stuck. It's a good name, and I would say that if you're two for two on uh, marriage, yeah, retire. <laughs> don't no, I would say don't retire. Keep it going. That's a pretty good record. Oh uh, yeah, maybe maybe. So, um, when did you start finding some unusual ingredients to uh, add to your cider along the way? Was that something you were thinking about early on, or did it just did you just in a very Portlandy way happen upon it? Yeah, uh, um, it, I won't. It was definitely not a plan because, like I said, the first cider I ever had was my own. I didn't know what cider was supposed to taste like. I didn't. Um, have any of honestly any of the respect for the traditions of cider making uh, I came at it from a beer perspective because uh, I'm still primarily a beer drinker 95% of what I drink is is beer um, and so that first batch of, of you know after I pressed the apples and had the juice I asked a home brewer friend hey what yeast do you have any yeast I can have and he gave me um, some uh, Y yeast 3724 Belgian Saison and I poured that in, not knowing that that's not what you're supposed to do. And it came out fantastic. And I loved the ester production that came from putting a Belgian Saison yeast into um, cider. And so I've always used beer yeast. And um, that's really unusual. When I started, there were no cider companies that were using any beer yeast. And I was using exclusively beer yeast. And I've used a, many, many different beer yeasts over the years. Um, the second batch of cider that I made had... Um, uh, hops in it because I like beer and there were again homebrewer friends who had hops and I was like so so when do you put the hops in and how much do I put in and so I was really just following 
essentially beer recipes, known beer recipes or beer processes for, um, you know, for making homebrew. And I just used a different fermentable base, um, cider rather than beer wort. So, I mean, I, the first cider that I ever, uh, sold commercially was, um, uh, Belgian Saison yeast, uh, cascade hops and some apricot juice. And that was really kind of inspired by at the time, pyramid had an apricot wheat that was an extremely popular beer um and i liked it and so i combined you know those flavors together and um that first cider uh, hallelujah hopricot really kind of put us on the map and what were some of the more unusual ones going on for the uninitiated uh, um well i think hopricot was a bit of a stretch for a lot of people but you know, once we convinced people that that's, those were acceptable ingredients and, and people started trying it, they opened up to, you know, whatever in, other ingredients we were coming out with. And so, you know, early on it was, um, you know, a lot of uh, cocktail-inspired um, ciders. So I had one called Deliverance Ginger Tonic that was a, a tonic made with um, uh, quinine, you know, lemongrass, lime zest, lime juice, um Ginger, that was fantastic cider. Um, the I've certainly made ciders that were really designed to be absolutely delicious and highly drinkable, but I've also made ciders that were just purely experimentation. So one of the most most famous ones that um, people reference when they talk about Reverend Nats is this time that I was learning about uh, fermenting meats um, at a home scale, so you know, curing. Uh, salamis and things like that. And I was working with um, the charcuterie maker at uh, Toro Bravo, um, who's making great salamis and whatnot. Um, And I got um, um, some some of these raw, some of these unpreserved salamis that were full of bacteria and molds. And then I got a leg of lamb, a raw leg of lamb from a butcher friend. and inoculated the lamb with these salamis and waited until the lamb started to mold and and bloom um, by itself. And then I slowly lowered this leg of lamb into fresh apple juice to see if I could do a co-fermentation of um, meat and cider, apple juice at the same time. And, you know, it worked. Um, The leg of lamb was in the cider for about six months. And um, the cider fermented, and when I pulled the leg of lamb out, it was um, kind of like ceviche you know, it was cooked from the acid. Um, I guess it was safe to eat, because we ate some, and nobody died. Uh, and then, um, yeah, nice the result... find that out after the fact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we, we did some <laughs> controlled experiments. Uh, and then we um, bottled the cider and called it Angel of Death. Um, and I... Uh, pasteurized the bejesus out of it so it wouldn't you know kill anybody uh and there are still some bottles if if you check like untapped there are there are still some bottles floating around of angel of death um and i i have heard that on my um ending party on september 23rd um that somebody's going to bring a bottle of angel of death for for the party oh that is unbelievable i feel as we've been doing this podcast almost 10 years, that is the apex of Portlanddom right there. <laughs> Pretty much. I, I don't think you can get any more Portland than, than a leg of lamb cider. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I, I won't say that it was like just some crazy idea because at that, that year that I did Angel of Death, there was a <laughs> um, Captain Beefheart. I'm pr- I, don't, I don't remember whether it was Upright or Breakside 
one of them made a beer. I don't know what kind of beer, and they put beef hearts in it. Um, I don't know when they did it. Maybe they cooked the beef heart in the kettle. I don't remember. Um, but I was like, oh, yeah, meat. There is like some really old storytelling <laughs> about um, chickens in putting chicken in to help a fermentation and that's scientifically accurate you 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 yeast do benefit from nutrients that are found in meat um so you can't you can have a healthier fermentation if you add meat whatever to fermentations um that i don't is think not, a lot of people would want to know that though no it's not a well-known thing and <laughs> and um yeah so is it's, that it's, a vegan it's, cider is that uh <laughs> yeah definitely not so it's a pretty obscure thing um so i didn't feel like i was that out there by doing this raw leg of lamb uh but that's the one that kind of stands out um as the that freak reverend that to making those crazy ciders wow that no i i don't, I'm not going to ask you to go any freaker. I think that's enough, even if you no, don't have it. I, I took one for the team. There's, if any cider maker is listening out here, you do not need to do that project. I did it for you. It's not good. Don't do it. Well, I would, and I wonder if they had it uh, for available at Toro Bravo, too. Oh, definitely not. It was not good. Um, it tasted, uh, after the bottle settled out, there was a thin layer of uh, purplish red sort of dust in the bottom of a bottle every bottle and we we just figured that was like iron precipitating out so when you drank it it tasted like tasted like iron it was not very excited it tasted like you were sort of sucking on a penny or whatever it was not very good wow you are uh, you've got a an iron clad system going there <laughs> you've tried, yeah. a lot. tried um, a lot so the other thing that you mentioned was that uh you got to travel a lot all over the the world and um I would imagine some of that was being an ambassador for your own brand, but as part of that was an ambassador for cider and Portland cider. But so what are some of your best memories or your most exciting memories that you got to experience as a result of this business? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think there is um, cider. uh, Cider is a regional drink everywhere it's made. And some of the strongholds of cider are uh, France, Spain, England, um, uh, New Zealand, a little bit in Australia, um, a little bit in South Africa and across the United States. And it's not widely made in a lot of places. It is made almost everywhere in those middle latitudes where apples can grow. Um, but it doesn't really have a culture around it, um, outside of the, you know, those big places. Um, or, you know, like, for instance, cider in Austria is a thing, but so is, like, you know, fermented apricot wine. Um, so one thing that I found myself doing as we gained in notoriety and in production volume was trying to go to these other markets that had a decent cider um, culture already and and show them how what the Portland with the with the Northwest cider culture was like, and you know bringing my ciders and talking about the ciders that we made here in America, and talking about the ones we made in Northwest, and then talking about my ciders. And it was really foreign to most of these drinking cultures to add anything other than apple to their ciders, um, and that's primarily because they have 
uh, they have very different varieties of apples than we grow in the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Northwest, Washington State actually grows more apples than the rest of the United States combined. And the United States is the second largest producer of apples in the world after China. The largest producer of fresh eating apples in the world is America. So we grow just vast, vast, vast quantities of apples in Washington, but they are eating apples, dessert apples, grocery store apples. They're not um, cider-specific varieties. And in places like France and Spain and England, they make ciders using, um, you know, the Pinot Noir, the Cabernet version of apples, right? So they're apples that have really unique names and have no purpose other than making hard cider. So the fruit that we have, these grocery store apples, doesn't benefit from being just apple ciders so um and because of a lot of the experimentation the culture of experimentation and the culture of being a bit revolutionary we have in the pacific northwest we um it was very natural for us to add other produce to it whether it's you know locally grown stuff or stuff from further afield so when i would travel these places i'd be like hey i put pineapple in my cider and they'd be like whoa no we do not drink a, a cider with the pineapple and then i'm like just stop talking Put a little sip in your mouth, and then you can complain. And nobody complained at that point. Um, they might not think it's cider. They might still complain about the the nomenclature used, but they were really receptive to the blend of flavors that I was putting together. Um, so that was really fun to go someplace and not tell them that they're wrong at all, but to show them that something that they think they know really, really well, we do something that's different than that, but you know, it's related. Um, and the reception was just fantastic um, in those places. And then I got the opportunity to go to some place like Japan numerous times where the uh, first time I go to Japan, there's no word for cider. We used to go to festivals in Japan in 2016 or 15, and I would uh, I would use the word um, uh, ringo sake, which is ringo is uh, apple and sake is sake. Um, so that was how we would describe what it is because people didn't know what it is. We would say apple sake and they'd be like, oh, OK, I get it. They didn't get it, but they would be willing to try it at that time. And then over the years of going to Japan and, and you know working with Japanese producers to start up cider operations and, and really start to develop a very small but growing cider culture in Japan, now they have um, two different words for cider in, in Japanese that are fairly commonly used amongst the, the craft beer community there. So that has also been really fun to go to an area that doesn't have uh, an established cider culture and not tell them this is how you have to do it, but tell them this is how we do it. And maybe you can take some examples and adapt it to your your local um, uh, your local agriculture and your local drinking style here um, to, to develop your own culture. Well, I think that's also what happens when someone starts from scratch, right? And doesn't have that long history where they're kind of... Um, uh they have to they have to do what's expected because anything outside of that is not high quality right, right. You, have to, yeah. you have to adhere to a certain standard so here you didn't and you had free reign and that's what came of that and um, I think that's kind of exciting I mean I'm sure that some of those French people viewed you as a typical ugly American you yeah. know uh, this is what exactly. they do they, they take something and turn it to shit so um but it was good that you were able to convince them in short time. So what were some of your favorite locations and things that you were able to do even outside of work, uh, the uh, experiences that you had in really cool places? Yeah. Um, I, 
one of this is closely related to work because honestly, a lot of my life has been around work recently. But when I was um, maybe in 2018 or so, I uh, met a fellow online, and he was just asking for some assistance about some business and cider questions. And he's a startup cider maker in Moscow, Russia. Um, Alexander Ionov, his cider company is now Rebel Cider, Rebel Apple, excuse me. And he, uh, you know, found some of the YouTube stuff that I put online about, you know, small scale production and, and the different kinds of ciders we were making. He found a lot of, um, uh, interest or, or, um, you know, passion for wanting to make his company that way. There is a small cider culture in um, Moscow area of Russia, but it's it's very rural and very um, very dogmatic in its approach, very wine based. And he's like, I don't want to do that. I want to do the kind of thing that you're doing in Portland. So we chatted a bit over the over a couple of years, and I helped him out um, with some of his fermentation questions and some of his equipment sourcing questions, and then. Um, I was in Europe in 2019 and I had a free weekend. I was there for three weeks and I had a free weekend and I was kind of near Prague and I was like, Hey, do you want to meet in Prague? And I'd never met this guy. Um, and we, uh, I was like, all right, let's just meet at this, whatever the name of the famous bridge is in Prague. Let's meet there on Thursday at 7 PM. And, you know, he shows up and we, uh, have a fantastic time for, for, you know, a couple of days in Prague just drinking really cheap beer, you know, 60 euros, 60 cents, uh, for, for a beer there, most of them and eating way too many pig knuckles. Um, and we just talked about cider and beer and we had a fantastic time. Um, and it wasn't, you know, a, a job. Um, but it was that connection that, that I had made, which was absolutely fine in Prague. You know, if you've never been there, it's an incredible city from an architecture point of view, from a purely tourism point of view. And, uh, and he had been there a few times, so he knew, the non-touristy places to go and uh, it's just one of those classic like you know pretty drunk for two days straight um in a foreign city and plenty of food and uh, just make sure i make my flight out on sunday night kind of a thing well that's key but uh that's uh that's my son actually went to prague recently and that kind of begs the question have you been able to travel with your son who helped you through this business and supported you in certain ways Uh, has he been able to have experiences as a result no um well my my it's non-binary so not son not daughter i'm sorry Um, but it's all right yeah it's funny when they were when my kid was six or seven um they used to come maybe eight they used to come and do deliveries with me <laughs> and they got really good at reading the uh uh no minors allowed sign and could know if it's a red one not at all if it's green one you got to read the time underneath and uh you know they would hold door open for me and, and you know step just inside the bar and stand right by the door not actually sort of entering the space and um you know, there's some really cute videos of like helping me label in the garage before I expanded, and um, and even just like last year, they were working in the cidery, working in the warehouse, running some machinery. So, um, th- my kid is not going to take it, you know get involved in in uh, the cider business or alcohol business. So, um, it was it's been a lot of fun. It's been a pretty flexible job, um, but we haven't done much traveling. The, my wife and kid came to Japan in 2019 with me. Um, my wife had a cold the whole time, so that sucked. Um, 
and you know we my 19 year old kid we've developed some great relationship with some friends in japan every now and then they talk about moving to japan to teach english as a second language and having some friends there right away that they can you know um have a little bit of a support network um so yeah i think i'm really excited that you know um be to be able to offer some more resources to you know the, the next generation based on some experiences that i've had for sure well, speaking of experiences, you've had a ton, and you've made a ton of contacts over the past dozen or so years. So I can't you imagine that something might come about where someone says, hey, Nat, I have this. It may not be in the cider business, but it may be sort of related, and that you've got all those contacts of people who are going to want it, who know you're a bright guy and have already built a business and uh can't you see that coming around possibly coming around the pike yeah you know i set up natwestbev.com when i i was getting ready to announce this and you know, there's a link from my instagram my you know parting instagram post that that's where you could find me um so uh, beverage consulting um that's the a theory that i might um uh, you know, find some work there. And I've already had like three people reach out and say, Hey, I make fermented ginger beer. I make you know, lavender lemonade. And I don't know how to pasteurize it. I don't know what kind of equipment I need, whatever licensing. It's all, and, you know, these are, you know, how to get a barcode is like a 12 hour research project if you've never done it before. But I can tell you how to do that in 10 seconds. So, uh, yeah, I've learned so much and met so many people. And um, if I don't know the answer to something, well, I'll tell you. But I also know how you could get that answer without spending 12 hours researching. So I'm definitely excited to um, share that information that I have, make other people's journey faster you know get to their starting line or or get to first base wherever they're trying to get to faster uh i've done a bunch of consulting over the years outside of you know my friend alexander in russia um uh so it, it seems very logical i mean for the good of the universe i should probably be a beverage consultant um just because people need to have this information and there aren't um uh, you know, there's one other guy who's really experienced in cider, uh, but we have a pretty different perspective. He's more of an orchardist, um, and I'm more of a, you know, a, a craftsman of the beer, beer type craftsman. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'd, I'd love to help out other people. If somebody were to come along and say, hey, I have a fermented soy milk alcohol. Do you want to run the company? I don't think so. <laughs> I... Um, I think I, I think I've taken that journey uh, as sort of an you know ownership type journey already. Um, I, I'd love to help other people achieve their dreams, but I think my dreams lie outside of food and bev uh, in, in, in a long term basis. Yeah, and I have a feeling that fifteen years from now you'll be surprised at where you end up. Yeah, my lead left field. <laughs> my lead cider maker, he says, "I'll give you one year, and then you're going to hire me back for some other project, beverage project." And I'm like, you know. Never say never, but... Oh, I don't think it's going to be, be in beverages. I think it's going to be out of complete left field, which is what happened to me. So that's why I think that. Yeah, I mean, very uh, well could course. be. So yeah. you talked about closing in the, in the spirit of Reverend Nats and doing it properly. Exactly. Let's talk about you've got a couple of weeks left. By the time this streams, there'll be a week left, right? So you're closing right. on the 24th? Yeah, 24th is a Sunday. That's the last day in the tap room. 
And then the uh, the twenty third Saturday is our our final party. Um, maybe you call it a wake. Maybe you call it a last party. It'll be the last day that we're in the tap room. And so uh, that's it. There are no other things around the last couple of weeks. Just um, that yes, Saturday so the, and Sunday. Yeah, the um, starting on the eighteenth, which is the Monday leading into that week, we'll have case sales at the tap room. So if anybody's in Portland, uh, they want to get some, they can come there. Um, we're I am currently shipping to like 41 states um and you can go to the website to get that that to accomplish that task uh we'll continue to do that probably through the end of september not sure when i'll turn that off where our inventories are running really low we haven't manufactured any cider for a couple weeks and so whatever uh we have is what we have and whatever um our distributors have you know is what they have and then when our retailers sell out that's <laughs> they're done at that point hello mr cat cat jumps in (laughs) my dog's over there so we keep him we keep him at bay um well that's i i don't i don't know i'm glad you're excited about it it's great what about assets of the company do you have assets that that's part of the project that to to sell off and and uh, make the best of what you have yeah, I've got a lot of stainless steel tanks and a canning line and actually had a meeting today with an auctioneer who's going to handle that for us. So that's I, I've been really busy for the last couple of weeks and I will be really busy for the next couple of weeks just making sure everything gets taken care of um, and we're able to pay back the investors at least some of what they uh, put in. So a big project there. I have um, uh, five new releases that we're coming out with in the next starting next week. Uh, the end of next week, um, the 14th. So by the time anybody hears us, we'll have these releases out. Um, two alcohol-removed hard ciders and three barrel-aged um, ciders that have just been sitting in barrels for between three and six years. And it's like, oh, we better get those out. Uh, so the last one that we're going to release is called Swan Song. I guess I've been holding that name for a little while. It's a fantastic 8.5% cider with orange zest in it. So some really good opportunities to come in and, and get your fill um, in the tap room, but also some sort of mandatory visits in order to get the last things that we're making here. Oh, fantastic. So one more thing. You're still going to be in Portland enjoying yourself. Are there some places that uh, when your friends come in from out of town, you tell them they have to go? Yeah, I mean, there is certainly a lot of turnover. So some of my favorite restaurants don't exist anymore. Yep. Um, but from a beer perspective, I think uh, Horse Brass is, you know, one of the classic institutions of Portland. Um, I really like Steeplejack as well. They make um, English style beers, which are my favorite, like low low ABV, oftentimes not hoppy beers. Some of my favorites. They're coming to Manzanita. Yeah, exactly. At They're, some they've point been growing soon. like crazy for good reason. Fantastic brewers there. Um, and then, you know, my favorite sort of um, locals-type beer bar is the Beer Mongers in southeast Portland. I was just there last night, and um, that's um, – uh, Beer Mongers has a, a place in my heart for sure. That is fantastic, and I'm glad that I'm, – I'm sure they'll be glad you mentioned them as a, as a parting note here on the podcast. Thank you so much, Nat, for taking the time at this, uh, at this time. I appreciate it. I'm sorry we didn't hook up earlier, but I think uh, – 
I think it's nice that you've had an hour to talk about your business. I have set, seen some TV news stories, and they're like edited probably 27 yeah. seconds of actual seconds, exactly. conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for the time, Chris. It's really been really fun. No, it's great. I appreciate it. We'll send you all the, if you want to share this uh, yeah. as a parting note, we'll send Absolutely. you everything. And, Thank you. Um, we'll wish you well going forward, man. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful 12 years. Thanks to all my customers for uh, making it a reality. Good. It's been a wonderful hour. We appreciate it. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right